Bibles, if you would now, and open them to the epistle of 1 John chapter 5. And we have arrived now at the last four verses of this epistle, which will conclude our study. And um, we're going to consider these last verses as a whole. Uh, We're not going to finish them tonight. We're just at the beginning of the end, and we're getting close to it, but we're not quite there yet. And the final messages will be entitled, Absolutes We Affirm. Christianity is a religion of absolutes. There are axioms in Christianity. There are certain absolutes that our faith is built upon, and they are essentials, and we're certain of them, and without them, uh, we don't really have biblical Christianity. Those of you that care to, you might want to, you may think back to the time that you were in school, and you may remember in mathematics that there were theorems that you could prove that were based upon certain axioms. And I remember many years ago being in geometry class and we were asked to prove the Pythagorean theorem. How many of you know what the Pythagorean theorem is? All right, some of you. For all of you non-Pythagoreans, the Pythagorean theorem says that the sum of the square of the sides of a right triangle are equal to the square of the hypotenuse. And there are several different proofs that you can use for that uh, or equations and so forth that you can prove that that is true and there are some short versions of that to prove it but as I remember when I was in school that we had to use one of the long versions which involved about 98 or 99 steps uh, mathematical equations to prove that theorem and so these axioms that you have in mathematics are to help you to get the right answers and if you don't know them and if you don't employ them then you're not going to arrive at the right answers so these are things that are unchangeable you you don't mix them up you don't change them because without them you'll never arrive at the right answer so we accept things like that as as being true they're proven and then eventually we come to accept them as being self-evident now strangely enough though there are people that believe that there is such a thing as changing truth that truth is relative and what's true for you may not be true for me and I'm sure that you've heard some of the horror stories of our public school education that uh, in some places they have decided no longer to strive for right answers because who's to say what's right and I've even heard that in some of the schools that they don't grade math papers any longer for right answers the most important thing is that you try, that you give the effort. And there are some who apply that same theory to religion, that they say there is no way to know for sure the way that you can get to God, and so the way to get there is whatever way that you think it is. And so if you're trying and you're seeking and you have faith in something or faith in anything, that would be sufficient. And so people say that there are no no certainties. Philo, the... uh, Jewish philosopher said, he was an ancient Jewish philosopher, said, we can say nothing with certainty about anything because the picture presented to us is not constant. And so, in other words, Philo said, the only thing that we can be certain about is there is no certainty. And that's the wisdom of the world because if there's one thing that is certain, then it's certain there are certainties. And that's the reason I'm not a philosopher. It makes my head hurt. But for those who think that truth is relative and that religion falls into that category and there are no absolutes in our faith and there need not be, then you really need to listen 
to what John says in the end of this letter. Now, if you look in 1 John chapter 5, verse number 18, John says, For we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God has come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Now, I'm sure that it caught your attention as we were reading this, that in verse number 18, John said, we know. And then in verse number 19, he said, and we know. In verse number 20, at the beginning, he said, and we know. And then in the third clause of the 20th verse, he said, we may know him. And so four times in three verses, John said, we know. And he didn't say, we're not quite sure, and we're gathering more information about this, or there's no way we can be absolutely certain. He says, we know. And that's the entire theme of the epistle of 1 John. We know. And because we know, we have assurance. So we're not talking about unproved theories, not conjecture. We're not talking about things that we're not certain of. But these are things that we know as absolutes. And we affirm these things as absolutes because they're inevitable conclusions that we've drawn from the study of God's Word and from direct statements that God says in His Word. And so if you do a quick reread of of this letter, you'll see how many times that John uses that word no, and you'll find that John is quite certain of his faith, and he wants us to be certain of it as well. Now, assurance is the theme, and if the world is right about religion, and there are no absolutes, and there is no no, uh, truth, truth is relative, then we stand on very dangerous ground, because we can't know anything for sure unless there are absolutes. And that is a self-evident truth. Now, I know that there are people that visit Berean, and they really don't like what we have to say. Uh, We are very dogmatic about truth, and we stand on God's Word as the infallible truth. That's the only truth, and God is the author of it. And so they don't like us to talk like that because they're more interested in unity than they are in truth. And so many people are just willing to lay aside a dogmatic approach to Scripture because doctrine becomes divisive. And so if I preach against the doctrines of Roman Catholicism or against Pentecostalism or against what Mormons believe or others, people will say, well, that's not Christian because you're being divisive. And their opinion is that truth is in you and it's in your interpretations and whatever conclusion that you might draw that's all right whatever you think about the scriptures is okay because if it's right for you then that's all that matters well peter wrote about divine truth he said in second peter chapter one knowing this first that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man but holy men of god spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And that means that there is only one interpretation of Scripture, and it's God's interpretation, not man's. And the men that wrote Scripture wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so they're not giving their opinion, and they're not giving a commentary on what they think is right. What they have written down is what God says is right. So this is why John can say in these closing verses, this is what we know. 
We can affirm this. We know it's true because it fits with divine inspiration. It fits with divine character. It fits with divine commandments. It fits with divine holiness. It's consistent with what we have been told by God. So what is it then that we can be absolutely sure about? What are absolutes that we affirm? Well, I wouldn't say that the final statements that we find here in 1 John are all of the things that we affirm. Uh, because we have a statement of faith and contains many articles and uh, it's built upon scripture and there are a lot of things there that we affirm. But as it pertains to these scriptures, this is a summary of the book and in light of the problems that John is dealing with here with these first century Christians and the ones that he's writing to in particular, these are uh, conclusions that he comes to and he makes these affirmations that apply to those particular problems. And as you know, after many weeks of study and months of study, there was confusion among these people about the identity of real Christians. How do you know that a person is really a Christian? Do we just accept their word for that? Or is there some kind of proof that we are to look for? Well, if you're prone to listen to Christian radio and to Christian television... Uh, you would be led to believe that the body of Christ is wide and deep and encompasses just about any kind of belief it goes. And so you don't really look for proof, you just accept what people say. And so if they say that they're Christians or they claim the name of Christ, then they must be of Christ. But that's really one of the main issues that John is dealing with in this epistle. And I'm sure that he wouldn't have been afraid to quote Jesus, who said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so you can't come along and say, well, I am a Christian and deny the deity of Christ. And you can't say that I'm a Christian and deny the incarnation. And you can't say I'm a Christian when you live a consistent life of disobedience. And that's because there are proofs, there are absolutes. Not only proof of which people are Christians and which are not, but there are also absolutes that we affirm about the Christian life itself. Now, we're looking here at the last four verses, but you might also note that we've been talking about absolutes in the previous verses. In verse number 13, John says, we know that we have eternal life. And in verse 15, he says, there's certain things that we can know about prayer. And so the end of this chapter is is a continuation of affirmations, and this is the sum up of things that have already been expressed in the previous chapters. And so we should recognize then, first of all, by what John says here, that we affirm the source of our security. We affirm the source of our security. We affirm that we have been born of God. Now, the beginning of verse number 18 says, we know that whosoever is born of God. And right there you find the identity of a Christian. The definition of a Christian is one who has been born of God. And that means that whatever certainties that exist, exist for us because of this relationship that we have with God. Something has happened to us that's different from the rest of the world. And we're going to talk about that in a later message much more. But we'll talk about that difference between us and the world. We have been born of God and others have not been. And those that are born of God are secure in their holiness. And according to uh, this verse, verse number 18, a child of God does not continue to sin. He says, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. Now, John has already said something nearly identical to that back in chapter 3. In the sixth verse there, 
He says, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. And then in the ninth verse, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. So this is what we know from reading verse number 18 and reading those previous verses. We know that sin is inconsistent with salvation. Now, I'm not going to labor to go into a full explanation of these verses again. We've been over that when we were in the third chapter. But I do want you to remember this, that the scripture is saying that Christians do not habitually sin. And we interpret those verses according to the tense of the original language, and the meaning there is a continuous action, that Christians do not continue in sin as a habit of life. And so if someone comes along and says that they're saved, and you observe their life, and they're still living according to the old patterns, when you see that there is no change that has taken place, when you see there is no production of the fruit of the Spirit, when you see there is no activity that indicates that they've been raised from spiritual death into spiritual life, then it's possible to conclude that they're not really Christians. And and this was an important argument for the Apostle John because there were false Christians that were in the church that were confusing true Christians, and they were saying that sin has no effect on the spiritual man. And sin is a part of your flesh, and sin is a part of your body. They're separate. The spiritual man and the physical man are separate, and one doesn't have bearing on the other. And so what what I do in the flesh doesn't have any bearing on the spiritual man. And so there were people in the church that were still living in their old lifestyles. They were still indulging in the activities of the heathens that were around them, and yet they still claimed that they were Christians. And this is what John is arguing against. And really one of the best arguments that he has is in verse 8 of chapter 3. He says there, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Sin is the product of the devil's activity. And so wherever you see sin, that means the devil is at work. And so Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and either Jesus was a success at that or he was not. So if a Christian can continue to live in sin, then Christ was not successful in destroying the works of the devil. See, what Christ came to do was to make a change in us, and and if that change is not there, then he didn't do the work that the Father gave him to do. And so we affirm this. We are absolutely sure of this, that everything that Christ intended to do by his life, by his death, and by his resurrection was accomplished. We believe that Christ delivers believers from their sin. And we believe that he brings a change of habit to our lives. And we affirm this, that he puts new desires within us. We affirm that Christians live according to the new nature given to us in the new birth. And we affirm that Christ did destroy the works of the devil that held us captive in sin. So sin is incompatible with salvation because it opposes the work of the Savior. And so when you see that person that continues to live in sin, then either he's not saved or Christ is a failure. You can't have it both ways. And this is what John says in verse 10 of chapter 3. He says, In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. The English Standard Version has, uh, is very, very good on this particular verse. It says, But this, by this it is evident 
Who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? It is evident. There's, there's proof. There's an absolute here and you can affirm it. And then it goes on to say, Whosoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So you can't have those that continue to live in sin and then say, I'm a child of God. Somebody's lying. And you don't want to pin that on God. Christ came and did what he planned to do. He was not a failure. Now, there's also something else, I think, that really needs to be pointed out here. And we covered this in in Matthew. We've covered it also again here in 1 John. And that is that the apostles replowed a lot of ground that Jesus uh, taught in the, in the Gospels. How do you evaluate your Christianity? And, and Jesus had a lot to say about that. If you're looking for assurance, what kind of things do you put down on your side to tell you that you are truly saved? What is your proof? Well, there are many people that place their confidence in the church aisle. That is, they, they walk the church aisle and they shook the preacher's hand or they raised their hand during an invitation and then they came down the aisle and they, and they said, I believe. Or maybe somebody knocked on their door and, and uh, gave them a, a, a sales presentation for the gospel and, and they agreed to that and they prayed and they said, I believe. And some of them even take it a step further. They arranged to get the baptistry filled and they go through the motions and they walk down into the water and they got dunked. And whenever you ask them, are you saved? Well, that's what they refer to. They say, well, oh, you know, I, I made a profession, or I, I prayed a prayer, or I went through baptism. But do you ever find a place in Scripture where it says that there is where you base your assurance? You don't base your assurance on anything that's in the past. You base your assurance on where you are right now. And if you can't look at your life right now and see that there's a change and see that there's something new about you, a new pattern has developed, and that pattern is obedience to Christ, then there is no reason to have any confidence in your salvation. And that's because those past activities, whatever you did, might have been a sham. And if there isn't that radical change that's taken place, and that's what it is. True Christians are no longer slaves to sin. Isn't that what... Paul said in Romans, he says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. And so if sin still has you harnessed, harnessed, and, and you're still serving fleshly desires, and you're still carrying around all of those sins, and you haven't been freed from it, if that's still a dead weight that's hanging around your neck, and you spend all of your time feeding it, and giving into it, and letting it control you, and there is no fruit of the Spirit, then there is no salvation. And that's because sin is inconsistent with salvation. So John said, we know this, whoever is born of God sinneth not. Or he does not go on sinning. And the evidence is that he switched masters. Now he's a slave to righteousness and not a slave to sin. Well, I want to take that a step further. And we're just barely going to get into this next part tonight. But the second part is falling is inconsistent with faith. And rather than to deal with the main point that I want to make uh, on this statement... I need to preface this discussion with a textual variation. And the next week we'll, we'll resume the study and I'm going to get more directly to the point. And so I want you to look very closely at the second part of verse number 18. 
It says, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. Now, this is one of those places where a a slight alteration in wording can change the meaning of the passage. Now, in some cases, you change the wording and that makes for heresy. And we reject that because it's inconsistent with other parts of Scripture. And where the wording is not clear, many times people will try to build a doctrine on that. And so that's why we very carefully check other places in the Word of God to see if that interpretation is correct. And if we find disagreement in other places of God's Word, then we know that our interpretation of a particular passage is wrong because God's Word is never inconsistent. But then there are also times when there may be a change in wording that doesn't affect the truth, but what it does, it presents to us something that is equally true. And if we uh, take that, then we haven't missed truth, but we might not really understand the author's original intent And we get truth, but it's not exactly what the author intended to say. Now, understand here that what I'm talking to you about is a matter of translation. We have an English translation of the Greek language, and we trust the translators. And by that, I mean that we trust the translators of the King James Version. But what we don't do is we don't claim their infallibility. We don't believe that there are any errors of doctrine that are in the King James And we can't honestly say about some of the modern versions that that they have injected errors in the text there that that produce erroneous doctrines, I say, with some of them. And you may not be aware of this, but this idea that the King James is inspired, as some people believe, is a relatively new doctrine. And people that believe that won't even say King James Version. They'll say King James Bible. But that idea that the King James was inspired is, is, is really relatively recent. Uh, the King James is now a little bit over 400 years old. And for 340 years of King James history, nobody ever said that the King James Bible was inspired. Now, we use the King James because we believe it was translated by the best method, and that's verbal equivalency. And we believe that the New Testament was translated from the best manuscripts, and that was the Textus Receptus. Now, all of that's informational as we come here to verse number 18 in 1 John. And the question here in in, in chapter 5 is about this phrase, He that is begotten of God keepeth himself. So who is intended by begotten of God and should himself there be translated as him or as himself correct? Now most modern versions take he that is begotten of God to refer to Christ. They follow the Alexandrian and the Vatican codices and they put him there instead of himself. I'm sure you recognize that himself is a reflexive pronoun. And so if that first part of it refers to Christ, then it wouldn't make any sense. This could not be about Christ keeping himself. And so you have to change or they change the pronoun to him. And that would mean that the Christian is secure in his faith because he is kept by Christ who is the begotten of God. Christ is the one who keeps him. Now, on the other hand, the King James Version makes he that is begotten of God refer to the believer, and the believer keeps himself. And you can see that those are two very different meanings, and yet both of those present truth that you find in the Word of God. Both of those are doctrines that you find in God's Word. The first one presents the truth of eternal security. 
And that's what we call our preservation. And the second one gives us the truth of perseverance, which is the duty of Christians to continue in the faith. Now, strangely enough, many people, uh, perhaps most of them that would dare not touch one of the modern translations, actually have a better friend in the NIV than they do with the King James. And this is because they don't believe in the doctrine of perseverance, which is what the King James very clearly teaches from this verse. Now, the NIV follows that Alexandrian reading, and it's much more suitable to their doctrine because it doesn't make them deny what the King James Version so clearly states. And so you can see these things make some strange bedfellows sometimes. Well, the truth is, of course, that you can read it either way, and you're not going to run afoul of truth. Now, what I prefer to do is to stick with the King James reading because those that take the other position uh, will admit that there are far more manuscripts that agree with the King James than they do the modern translations. But, that, but that's not always the deciding factor, and it's not in this case. So let me make a few more comments about that to, to kind of set you up for next week, and then we'll save the rest of it for next time. But let's just assume for a moment that the modern translations are right and that the one who is begotten of God refers to Christ and the pronoun should be him. Well, if that's right, then we have this great argument for why we cannot continue to sin and why we can never fall into apostasy. And that is, if Christ is dwelling in us and keeping us, then his presence will not permit us to persist in sin. So John says, we know this, we affirm this. Christ keeps us so the wicked one doesn't touch us. And that would certainly bring to our minds uh, scriptures such as Romans chapter 8 that's so clear about eternal security. It brings to mind John chapter 10 and Jesus' words where he said that we are kept in the Father's hands and also in his hands. And so the Bible teaches that we cannot fail in our faith. We are not going to turn back to sin because we are eternally secure in Christ. Peter makes that affirmation. Jude makes that as well. And in fact, it's a doctrine that's spread over the entirety of the New Testament. That once we are in Christ, that we're true believers, we can never fail in our faith. And that answers a lot of questions about some that we've known that profess to be in the faith, and yet they go on and they live like a devil. You know, when I was at uh, Brother Castro's a few months ago, there was a lady that approached me with this, with this very question because I had said something about eternal security in my message. And I think that she may have had some family members that she was concerned about, and it was evident that there was only one conclusion that could be drawn, and the conclusion was that their lifestyles showed that they never were saved. Because if they were, then they wouldn't have continued to live in sin and they wouldn't depart from the faith. And we could bring 1 John 2.19 into that, and that's the very point that John makes there, that if they are of us, then they'll stay with us. If they're not of us, then they'll go out from us to prove that they're not of us. So we can look at that side of this, and if this refers to Christ, then we have great doctrine there for sure. And folks, I have no problem believing that. I have no problem with that at all. But then what if the King James translators are right? Well, then we have another place in Scripture that teaches the perseverance of believers, that we who are saved have the responsibility to continue in the faith and that the one who is born of God, that is the believer, if that refers to him, that the one who is born of God, the believer, keeps himself. Now, I can hear the weeping and the wailing 
from those that don't believe in the doctrines of grace. They don't want to have any part of any of this. And so that being one of the five points, they have to deny it. Uh, They don't want to have anything to do with any of it. And so they deny the doctrine of perseverance. If it's in there, then it has to go. Well, then what are we going to do with this verse? They're sure not going to go to the NIV reading, even though it's better for them. On two or three occasions in the past, and not in the too distant past, I preached extended messages on the doctrine of perseverance. We did that in the Philippians series, so I'm not going to go into that now. But the Bible teaches perseverance. And I'm just going to give you a couple of verses out of many to show you that. Second Peter 1 verse 10 says, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. In Jude, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Now let me ask you, could you superimpose 1 John 5.18 on those texts and see the very same teaching? He that is begotten of God keepeth himself. That's perseverance. Now, as a moment ago, I said a moment ago, that's one of the five doctrines of grace. And we're always careful to use the modifier here. And that is that we call it sovereign grace. And that means that anything that we have power to do, it is because of God's power. Now, it's odd that those who deny this doctrine uh, are always, in other places, coming down on the side of human responsibility that they want to talk about the will of man. But when it comes to this doctrine, they don't want to have anything to do with the will of man. And here we are, preaching human responsibility, and now they avoid it like the plague. Now that shows you something. It just shows you how inconsistent that they are and how much easier it is for us just to take the Scripture as it is rather than trying to explain it away. So perseverance is taught. S. Lewis Johnson said, We are responsible to follow the teachings of the New Testament with the help of God, the Holy Spirit. And we have assurance if through the power of God and through the word of God, through our Lord and his ministry, he guides us to give ourselves to keeping of Holy Scripture, that he will keep us in the faith. And then he said, We believe that. Well... He affirmed it, and that's what we do. We are certain of this. These are absolutes of God's word that we are unshakable on. We affirm them. We are dogmatic about them. And it matters little to us what anybody else thinks about it. The most important thing is what does God say about it. And so we affirm the infallibility of God's word, the truth of Scripture. There is one truth, and that's God's truth, and we affirm it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight, and and, uh, this is just, uh, in in one sense, the word, almost an overwhelming text that we look at here. There's so many truths that are are here, and this is why we want to spend so much time on on this talking about it. Uh, Absolutes that we affirm, things that we know from the Scripture, and we are going to stand on those things because you have said them. And Lord, we just uh, pray that you'd help us to continue to do that no matter what anyone else says, no matter what anybody who comes to visit us says and whether they like us or whether they don't. uh, We don't switch things up because uh, we want to please somebody. We want to stick with the truth of your word. Lord, help us to do that. Be with our people tonight. We thank you for the attendance of uh, your people in this service. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.